Gretchen Evans. So what inspired you to join the military? Um, you know, I went to, after I graduated from high school, I went to college for a, a year, but I was financially on my own. And I found it difficult at first to go to school full time, try to work and do all those kinds of things. Um, I was raised in a very patriotic family. So I decided uh, there's got to be an easier way to do this. Um, I went down to the recruiting station. I didn't really have uh, a preference on which service to join. And my intention was to do four years, get the educational benefits, learn a skill, save some money. Okay. Most people, you know, kind of go in for those reasons. Um, I walked into the very first door and it was the Marine Corps door and I'm a very small petite woman and I was about two steps into that door and that big marine came up to me and he says no you're too small <laughs> I didn't want to mess with him so I walked to the next door and it was the uh air force and I thought oh okay great I'll I'll fly you know airplanes how fun will that be and they brought out a measuring stick and you have to be five foot four to fly. And I was not. So at this point, I was getting a little discouraged. So I walked next door to the Navy and uh, they didn't care how big I was so much. And they, I was just about to sign the contract when I looked up at one of the posters of the typical Navy poster, the guy, you know, standing yeah. like this with the hat. And I said, are you still wearing that uniform? And they go, yeah. And I said, no, I can't do bell bottoms anymore. Okay. I wore those in the eighties and seventies. I'm not wearing bell bottoms. So um, I gracefully walked out and I went next door. It was the army. And I said, you got any problem with this package? And the army says, no, we don't care how big you are. We just care how big your bite is. Um, so I enlisted and honestly fell in love with, even in basic training, I knew I had made the right decision. Um, I loved the discipline. I loved the esprit de corps, like the camaraderie. Um, and so what turned out to be initially a four-year enlistment and getting out turned out to be a 27-year career and would have been longer had I not gotten blown up. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about your military journey? Yeah, so I went into intelligence and I was an intel analyst uh, in the beginning. And that my role was to learn as much as I could about the military of what we called our opposing forces, the enemy, so that we could counter, you know, whatever they had, the way that they deployed their units so that we would know. So I studied other armies. And then I was um, recruited to become a counterintelligence agent and went to language school and went to airborne school um, and then joined and part of the special operations command for, you know, units um, because they were looking for females that could speak languages and were willing to jump out of airplanes. So I did that for a really long time. And then once I made uh, Sergeant Major, you become generic. Okay. And your assignments are given to you. Um, usually like generals, they get to pick who their sergeant major is going to be. So at the division level, when a, when a general gets a division that he or she gets to pick their sergeant major. So you, your assignments are nominative. 
So you just bounce back and forth. You might have a military police unit. You may have a signal unit. You may have a whatever. Okay, because you become just a leader, just a sergeant major at that point. And your role is to be an advocate for the soldiers and to carry out the commander's intent. So it really doesn't matter what you were trained in. So I talked to a lot of veterans and they talk about the challenges they faced uh, uh, transitioning out of the military. And with your injury, how challenging was your transition? Yeah, so I think um, for me, it was it was crazy hard in the sense that I was injured. So, you know, I had 27 years and I could have retired at any time at, at that point, but we were in the middle of two wars and uh, the retirement never even crossed my mind at that point. But when I got injured and my injuries were so severe that that they I couldn't remain on active duty. And so not only was I struggling with going from being a soldier for 27 years, okay, that was my whole, since I was 19. So I went in at 19 and I was wounded at 46. That's, you know, your whole adult life almost. But stacked on top of that were injuries. So, you know, I was deaf and I had PTSD. I had a traumatic brain injury. And I'll be real honest with you, it was, it was shocking to me uh, how hard that transition was. I couldn't find anybody to hire me, um, despite the fact that I had a degree and had all this leadership uh, qualifications. Part of it was, I think, the military, I didn't... And, my resume didn't match what they saw as certain skills, and I wasn't wasn't good at it. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of help out there. There's so much more help now than there used to be. But also, they didn't want to hire me because of my injuries. It was a little bit of a bridge too far for them. You know, how are, are we going to work with the person who's deaf? Okay, even though I read lips. And how are we going to work with the person with a traumatic brain injury? And I think they were a little bit afraid and a little bit misinformed. Uh, about um, PTSD, I think it was a little scary for them. So, and you know, and rightfully so. I get, I get it now. Back then, um, you know, it was an unknown. People were thinking that we were going to cook off at any moment. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so there was a lot of misinformation about people with PTSD. It's much better now, I think, uh, yeah. for for warriors when they get out. But it was hard for me. And uh, I researched you a lot, and I saw the video from uh, the 2022 ESPYs uh, with the Pat Tillman Award. How does it feel that your mission is getting to a larger audience? Yeah, so that's my passion and purpose now. So um, having, you know, everybody gets kicked to the curb at least once in life, I believe. Regardless, you know, everybody has something traumatic happen in their life. And whether or not you can survive that, I think, depends on lots of things. One is that the realization that it's not forever, okay, that, you know, this happens, whatever happens to you, happens to you. And also that, like for me, I lost my hearing and yes, my brain, you know, I call my deck got shuffled, okay, and, and I had some other injuries, but once I got past the, oh my gosh, this has happened to me and was able to recalibrate, I realized that those, I call it mixed abilities, disabilities, didn't define me 
or determine what I could accomplish. That that was still in the, my own personal power to do the things that I wanted to do. And I couldn't use those things that, or shouldn't use those things as an excuse not to do, not to live my best life. And so through a series of, you know, failures and successes, um, I kind of came up with this, this uh, I don't know what you call it, but in, you know, employing your grit and your resilience and your gumption. And, you know, once you learn how to use those skills, you're unstoppable. And so I just wanted to be able to share with others. Yeah, I know how it feels to have the, you know, the rug pulled out from underneath you. And I certainly know how it feels to feel like that your life now will never be the same. But those were, you know, kind of mistruths I was telling myself. And that now my my uh, whole point in going out and speaking to audiences and the whole premise behind Team Unbroken is that those things don't define who we are or what we can accomplish. That those are just way we have to find ways to work around our injuries or work, uh, you know, to mitigate their symptoms or so that we can be the same people that we were. And I'll say this, you know, that rocket, it took my hearing, it took my brain, it took some skin off of me, but it didn't touch my soul. I was still the same person on the inside. In fact, I think I'm a better person after being blown up because I think I became more empathetic and sympathetic. Um, you know, I had a, a second chance to look at life and things that are important in life. And um, it really did propel me into a whole different level of compassion and empathy in caring for others. As a leader, how important is empathy? Oh, it's 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 one of the most important things because everybody's, you know, everybody's dealing with something. And if you as a leader can recognize that, you know, that maybe that very morning, you know, your soldier or your employee, you know, woke up with a baby that had 103 temperature. So, you know, they're a little distracted because they're worried about their child, or maybe they had a fight with their spouse or their significant other Maybe they just had a flat tire on the way in or something, you know, and and a little bit of empathy goes a long way to saying, you know, I know stuff happens in life. Okay. And a little bit, I always say a little space for grace, you know, let's just give a little space there. Not everybody's on their best day every day. And yet I, you know, always try to say, I'm not, I don't want to judge people on their best or their worst day. I want to take that what's in between, you know, the core of that person and saying this, this is the person and they have value. They're going to have really rock star days and they're going to have days when they might be your worst employee of the day. Okay. But those shouldn't define how you treat them or what value they can bring to the organization. It's all those other days, the in-between days that really are the makeup of that person. Can you tell me about Team Unbroken? Yeah, Team Unbroken. Yeah, that's part of my heart, Team Unbroken. Team Unbroken um, came about really through a friend of mine, uh, Eric Weinmayer. He was the first blind man to ever summit Mount Everest. And um, he sent me an email and he says, uh, Gretchen, they're bringing back the world's toughest race. And I think you should put a team, an adaptive team together and go compete. And so... I said, okay, you know, and so I 
got the application and I filled it out and I had already recruited a couple of, of my um, buddies, combat buddies and sent in our application and I got a big fat no. Okay, really quick, no. And so I wrote again, explaining, yes, we have some um, some challenges because I had one guy whose whole right side didn't work. And of course I'm deaf. Three of us had traumatic brain injuries. One of us was a very severe type one diabetic. There were some challenges. Uh, but again, we didn't think those kept us from being competitive because we were already competitive athletes in of ourselves with against able-bodied people. But I got about five no's, Michael. And then one day I got snarky, okay? And I said, you got to bump me up to somebody who's the decision maker because I was dealing with, you know, a gatekeeper. Right. And finally, I got on a call with the race director and Mark Burnett, who was the producer, and they both said this. They said, Gretchen, we want to say yes to Team Unbroken, but we're afraid. And I said, what are you afraid of? And he said, they said, we're afraid you're going to get hurt. And I started laughing because I said, we've already been hurt. Yeah. <laughs> There's not one person on my team that hasn't been hurt. I said, I said, all I'm asking is for you to put us on the same playing field with everybody else. And if we wash out on day one, that's on us. But to not give us a chance, you've told a whole population of people, okay, that they can't do this. And I said, that's for us to decide what we can and can't do, not for you to decide. And so, you know, Mark said, gosh, when you say it like that, Gretchen, it changes the whole, you know, the way I think about this. So anyway, he invited us to come and compete in the world's toughest race. Amazon fell in love with Team Unbroken because we're scrappy, okay? <laughs> you know, we didn't have the best equipment. We didn't have any big sponsors, but we got out there and we gave it our very best. And, you know, when we were challenged with, you know, running through the jungle in the middle of the night and I was unable to communicate with my team, if I can't see your face, I can't communicate with you. Uh, so we worked around that, you know, and I, they lanyard me to somebody else. So I didn't get lost in the jungle and, you know, we figured it out and it was very innovative. And also it showed people like us who had life altering injuries and illnesses that you can do hard things, that you can compete right alongside with completely able-bodied people. You just kind of have to figure out how to, how to work around your injury. Uh, or your illness. And so afterwards, about six months after they released it on uh, Amazon Prime, and it's still showing, by the way, um, Mark Burnett sent me an email and he says, nobody even cares or knows who won the world's toughest race, but everybody knows who Team Unbroken is. And he asked me to make a promise to him that we would keep racing and that we would keep telling our story because he felt like it was changing people's lives. Yeah. How has physical, your physical health help your mental health? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's both and, or, so, you know, we're, you're, you become mentally tough. People I always say this, people never know how strong they are until they have to be. Okay. And so, and that same thing about grit, you don't know, I, everybody has the same amount of grit in their, in their body, in their DNA, and it's not doled out, you know, to special people. 
people in the military have to engage their grit probably more than the average person out there. But once you engage your grit, you never forget how that feels about. Once you face something that you think that you're not going to be able to survive or is going to be so hard and you persevere through it, then that gives you that confidence that you need for the rest of your life. Um, so Team Unbroken, you know, we we train for all kinds. We like to do the, the craziest races we can find are the ones we enjoy the most. And um, so we have a couple coming up. One is called the Everest Challenge, where you pick a mountain and you climb it as many times as it takes to reach the height of Mount Everest, which oh, wow. is 29,000 feet. So we've signed up to climb Mount Stratton in Vermont uh, in October, and we have to climb it 17 consecutive times in less than 30 hours to reach the height of Mount Everest. Yeah, we're real excited about that one. That'll, that that one will that one's going to be tough. And then we're hiking the rim to rim for the Grand Canyon in November, and then we're doing another adventure race, a six day race in Costa Rica. Uh, that's like 400 miles. It's it'll be trekking and biking and whatever else they throw at us, uh, and that is in February. And then we we have a lot of speaking engagements where we just go maybe to companies or corporations and we just talk about what a real rope team looks like. You know what a team really looks like, and why we use the metaphor that we're tied together. And when one of us stumbles, the rest of us pick in so that person can stand back up and continue with the mission. And there's there's like this beautiful safety net in that, that you're not out there by yourself. OK, and everybody has failures and you get kicked to the curb, but you got your tied to these other people who are going to pick in for you until you can stand back up. And then I love the fact that it's reciprocal. So sometimes I'm the person that's on the ground. OK hoping my team is holding the rope. And sometimes I'm holding the rope for somebody else. And I think that's important in life that you not only receive, but that you're on the giving end of supporting other people. So that's really the whole premise behind Team Unbroken is that build your rope team and go do amazing things together. Because uh, it's so much more enjoyable. You know, I hike a lot. And sometimes I'll climb a mountain, you know, at sunrise and I get to see this beautiful sunrise. And by myself, it's almost anticlimactical because like, okay, it's pretty. But if I take five of my best friends with me and we climb this mountain, we get to see the sunrise together. It's five times more beautiful because I'm doing it with other people. How does it feel when you accomplish these very tough races? Yeah, we have some tough races. We, but the harder they are, the, I think the, the better time we have. Okay, because it really reinforces the fact that we need to be mentally and as physically strong as we can be. And none of us are young. I'm, I'm in my 60s and Dan's in his 60s and a couple of us are uh, people in my team are in their 40s. We're not young. Um, and we still we get out there and we, and we do it. Um, and it just like I said, we always learn something in the process not only just the training, but in the competition of itself, okay? When one of us is having a bad time, you got your other team members in there, you know? And everybody, we always ask, who's going to be the weakest link? Well, we don't ever know. It changes from race to race. Somebody could just not be feeling well that day or they're recovering from an injury or whatever it is, but that's okay because we got you. 
that's a whole point in having a team is that you don't always have to, you know, carry the load by yourself. I saw that uh, you're a, a big supporter of service dogs uh, and you've done quite a, quite a lot for that. What have you learned from your own service dog? Oh, my service dog, Rusty. He's amazing. Um, I've learned what true devotion and loyalty looks like. Okay, because no matter what kind of day I'm having, Rusty's always there doing his job, which is to alert me to sounds, to keep me safe. Um, he does nightmare interruption when I have nightmares. Um, if he feels like I'm, you know, sad or agitated or having a bad day, you know, he's right by my side. And, you know, he's just the epitome of what uh, the perfect friend would look like. You know, he's always happy to see me. If I, if I walk out without him, I don't leave him very often. If I have to go someplace and not take him with me, he's right there at the door and his tail is wagging. It's like he never has a bad day. Okay, so what I've learned from Rusty is that, you know, I need to be that kind of friend to other people, you know, to be there for them and, and try not to let bad days sidetrack me. Um, the value of the of a service dog is that, you know, in the days when maybe you're trying to find meaning in life and you're struggling with, you know, dark thoughts from your traumas, I can look down in that face and those beautiful brown eyes and, and that ta tail wagon, you know, it makes you want to, it makes you think there's no way I'm checking out of this life, okay, because first of all, this dog's depending on me, okay, I take care of him and he takes care of me. And uh, I think they bring great value into anybody's life, a service dog. Yeah, I'm a big, big champion for people who need and want a service dog to have one. Yeah, I've interviewed uh, Paws for Purple Hearts before, and just seeing these dogs in action is, is so amazing at what they do for yeah. Uh, yeah. these veterans. Amazing. What are some of the things that motivate you? The thing that motivates me the most is seeing people reach their potential. Okay. I like, like, I love to run marathons with first time runners because there is nothing so beautiful than to see them cross that finish line and whether they're crying or smiling or high-fiving or whatever it is because they put in so much effort into it. And there was always a time along the way where they thought they would never accomplish it. And then they do, they actually cross that finish line. And, you know, it's like getting the, the job they never thought they would get, or, you know, salvaging a relationship that they thought was lost or something like that. So what motivates me is to be a part of helping people live their best life. And that's where I get the most joy out of. You're with helping others, what do you do to take time for yourself for your own mental health? Yeah, so I take plenty of time for myself because <laughs> I know that for me to be to be involved in people's lives, I've got to be at my best. Um, so you know, I I'm a I you know I get up every morning. I kind of kind of have a little bit of a ritual. I get up in the morning. I have a little bit of quiet time. Uh, with Rusty, I always take him for a walk, usually before the sun's up. Uh, we're in Texas now and it's hot. So, uh, for, you know, we're out before the sun gets up. And then I do what I need to do for whatever I'm training for at the time. I try to get my training in in the morning. 
and I protect that time because I know I need that time. So, you know, I've already got, I ran 11 miles this morning. Okay, oh, wow. So that's done. And Rusty's <laughs> had a walk. That's done. Um, and then, you know, I try not to overpack my days um, so that I don't feel so, I don't feel stretched. Yeah. Um, I do a lot of reading and thinking and journaling and I check on my rope team uh, every day and with Team Unbroken, I talk, you know, talk to them most every day. So, you know, those are all positive things that keep me whole and keep me accountable um, and so, so that I'm my best self. Okay. And I try to catch myself if I get overly tired or overly committed. Um, I do, my husband's really good about balance. He'll look at my schedule and say, no more this month. Okay. You know, you're, you're, you have enough days where you're traveling or you're speaking or whatever you're doing, no more this month. And so we have a, a nice balance where, um, it's my, you know, if I, my heart tells me always to say yes. Okay. When somebody asks me to do something to say yes, but there has to be a reasonable side to that because I, if I say yes, I want to be at my best. And so sometimes I have to say no or not yet. Okay. So I prefer not yet <laughs> with, you know, wait and I'll be able to do this later. So self-care is really important. And, uh, you said uh, your husband, who's also retired military, how was it to have someone right next to you that's going through similar things? Yeah. So there's a positive side to that because he gets it. Okay. I mean, you know, he is a combat veteran himself and he served for 25 years. And so there's like this secret language that we have <laughs> when, um, you know, we there's like, you know, certain days that are maybe sad for us, you know, like a day when we lost one of our really good friends or days that are very, uh, can be triggering for us. And we know what those days are. And we know to be extra tender uh, with that person as they're kind of navigating that day. Um, we also, you know, speak in a military language. It's like people say it's like a foreign language. Okay. And so that's nice that I don't have to explain acronyms to him <laughs> that he gets him. And also we're kind of wired the same way. You know, we get up and the first thing we do is we make our bed. Okay. And we preloaded what we need for the day, the night before. So there's no, you know, running around the last minute. You know, not everybody is, is wired like that, nor, nor do they need to be. But for us, it just that makes us peaceful to have everything, you know, is taken care of as we as we can, you know, so that we, you know, we're prepared for the uh, unknown, just yeah. in case we have to shift. Okay, and then it's not such it's not such a big shift because we got everything else taken care of. So um, I think it has great benefits of marrying another military member because, like I said, they get it. Okay, absolutely get it. 